you know, some people have this, like, I had a moment that catalyzed my sense of where, where I'm supposed to be in this world. And then I think there's a lot of people who don't have that, but they can still have purpose. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today, Leah Weiss, PhD, helps leaders be better humans. If you're a leader, if you work in a professional environment, or if you experience Sunday dread, overwhelm, burnout, mom guilt, inertia, a struggle for balance, then this interview is for you. Leah is a researcher, a speaker, professor, consultant, and an author. She created the highly popular Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion course at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's also a founding faculty member of Stanford's Compassion Cultivation Program, which was conceived by the Dalai Lama. Leah co-founded Skylight, a company that specializes in using the latest neuroscience and behavior change to empower high-performing leaders and managers to prevent burnout for themselves and their teams. Leah's first book, and the one about which I ask her many questions in this interview, is called How We Work. Live your purpose, reclaim your sanity, and embrace the daily grind. It was endorsed by the Dalai Lama. She has taught and spoken in more than 100 organizations around the world, including Goldman Sachs, NASA, the European Commission, Google, Intuit, and more. And her work has been covered by outlets, including the New York Times, BBC, TED, the Financial Times, or Harvard Business Review, and on and on. So in this interview, we explore a lot of things that can help you not only be a better leader, but no surprise, as I said earlier, a better human. We talk about values excavation, how we can find out what truly matters to us and how we can live true to it. We talk about purpose, not just as a concept, but how we can incorporate it into our day-to-day lives. We talk about mindfulness. We talk about compassion. We talk about balance. Leah has a particularly interesting perspective of balance that I think you might find useful. We also talk, as we do in so many of these episodes, about Leah's writing and creative process, a little bit about what she's learned about marketing and promoting books. So if that's your gig, I think you'll want to hang around till the end. You can learn more about Leah and her work. You can find her online at leahweissphd.com. It's L-E-A-H-W-E-I-S-S. You can also find her on skylight.com or on LinkedIn, either for her, her account or Skylight's account on LinkedIn. So with that, I hope you enjoy and find benefit from and expand the amount of compassion and the amount of understanding and the amount of peace and the amount of productivity, health and happiness in the world from what you take away from this interview with my friend, Leah Weiss. Leah, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Would you tell me, please, what is life about? I... I find myself kind of um, moving towards the kind of quintessential Tibetan Buddhist answer because I don't think I've ever um, came came up with anything better. I think it's about wisdom and compassion. I think. 
That's the, at least that's what I try to focus on. And when I do, I think that um, always move in a, in a direction that, that involves growth. <laughs> yeah. Now I realize that the way any one of us answers that question, of course, is inevitably informed by the path we've followed in life, you know, the journey we've taken. And I understand that um, you've been on this path of wisdom and, and learning uh, and teaching for a long time, but that there was a class in ninth grade where you studied the literature of enlightenment. <laughs> is that is that true? And if so, will you tell me about it? Yeah. Um, so I had a teacher, um, Dean Slider, who would actually be a great guest for your for you and your community. He's a uh, uh, written a bunch of great books and he, um, he developed this class called literature of the enlightenment. And we read, uh, really across traditions as well as with humanists, secular humanists, uh, people like Thoreau. Um, and for me, when I encountered, um, Tibetan Buddhist text for the first time, it just like, completely the world stopped. Um, so many of the questions that I had been uh, very angsty kind of teen hashing out and trying to understand through reading all kinds of isms like this just made a lot of sense. Um, and he was a very, he is a very funny, practical kind of person who like really gets the teen psyche um, and so when he would teach things like meditation, I remember one of my good friends um, who was in his class with me tried to debrief from meditating and was like, Mr. Slider, it's just so boring to meditate. So very boring. <laughs> and it was really an honest moment. And, and uh, Dean responded to him, well, can you be with the boringness? And that was like, that in itself was just mind blowing. Like how much we try to move and fill and do and feel to avoid the space around the boringness that we're pushing against. So he, he had a lot of great ways to kind of instill um, these kind of epic points of wisdom in a way that like, a 14 year old could take in yeah. <laughs> and he could call us out. Like when we would cut class cause the dead were touring and we were going to a show and we had some total BS, you know, story. And he's like, I know the dead were at MSG last night and I know why you guys are exhausted. So like, <laughs> <laughs> it was good. It was good. Truly sounds like a man of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And very funny. Very, very good man. Well, what a gift to, to be exposed to that and to, um, to learn about these things in your teenage years is something I'm not sure I would have received at all uh, at that time in my life. But I understand that it's maybe set a trajectory for your career and even your life and that you've learned, you've traveled to Tibet and Nepal and in India, and you've even learned Tibetan. Is that right? That you at least conversationally fluent in, in Tibetan? I, at one point I was, I was pretty, um, pretty there. I'd say, you know, these days it's not, I can, I can still read, but I haven't been using 
using it as much. But yeah, it was a big priority for me to be able to read texts directly and to be able to, I spent a bunch of time when I was an undergrad, Stanford had this amazing um, kind of way of giving undergraduates research grants. And, um, and I applied for those and got different sources of funding so I could go and spend time in Dharamsala. And so I just wanted to be able to talk to people. Um, and I really felt drawn to spending time with the newcomer refugees, um, folks who had just recently escaped Tibet who hadn't had a chance to learn um, English, which most people would try to do after they'd you know, been in been in India or Nepal for any long period of time. So yeah, I, it's language is such an interesting thing. It really, you know, for those of you who have learned or, or have embedded in your, in your way of experiencing the world, multiple languages, it just, it informs how we see in yeah. the most fundamental way. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I'm seeing my, oldest who's getting ready for her bat mitzvah starting to get into the Hebrew and like, there's just ways that things are very different, you know, that, that your fundamental construct through language. Um, so I think it's a good thing. We're all hardwired to do it. And, um, especially when we're young. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think we, we don't know, right. We don't know what we don't know. And with language so much of it, I think defines or constrains, how we can even think and what we, what we see and so forth. And I'm reminded of this in a small way because years ago I studied Japanese and had the chance to live with a host family and so forth. And, and I just remember thinking how interesting it was that in the romance languages where we have like masculine and feminine, that in Japanese, there's verbs that denote whether something is animate or inanimate. And that sensitivity to life that I think is part of the entire culture that we don't have in the same way. It's no surprise is very, very different. But what, what would you say are some of the differences maybe that exist in the Tibetan culture that are perhaps reflected in or maybe even attributable to the language that, that are maybe different or unique from, from our culture? I think that there's um, a lot of setting of intentions through the at the beginning of any experience um, or meditation practice, um, there's just a, a structure of, of grounding in, in what the motivation is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that a lot because a lot of the conversations I have and the work I do is, is around trying to help people connect with a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think our lacking of this idea that as we start any conversation or process or item on the to-do list to reconnect with what is the motivation, the deepest motivation behind it, like what is the far-reaching goal that we're hoping that this action is going to in some way influence Um I think that's really powerful. And I, I think that there's an aimlessness that many of us or anxiety that many of us experience when we lose track of that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And this is something that I really appreciate from your book. And I have many questions. Um, so the book you wrote, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity and Embrace the Daily Grind, which was published not too long before the pandemic. 
right? And then we, and then the world changes, but in some ways, some things never change. Um, but I want to ask this question about, well, let me start with why did you write this book? who did you write it for? what did you want it to do for them? How did you hope the world might be different? Like anything related to the, to the book itself and why you wrote it? Yeah. So I wrote this book, um, because I felt that while there are many books on things like mindfulness at work or um, even how to develop more compassion, um, there's an overemphasis on the timeouts, on the meditation, on the separate um, kind of things that we do, which I'm all for. I spent much of my life in long meditation retreats, but there's still this really important question of what does it mean to be compassion in action? What does it mean to apply purpose throughout our day? What does it mean to, um, to, to take these, um, these really powerful concepts, practices, and weave them more consistently through um, how we're experiencing and creating our lives and I also really wanted to do that from the location that I was at. I had three kids under five, you know, like the, living in a very expensive place, trying to figure out how to um, how to do meaningful work um, and support my family um, and, you know, and stay kind of very tied to the practicality and, and not see that as, as disparate. Um, and I, I think, you know, for me, that's why I started the, the opening section of the book is about one of the siddhas or the opening sections about one of the meditation masters who, who practices meditation while he repairs shoes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's very much the thesis. It's not about the breaks between repairing shoes. It's about the pro how can, he show us how we can make our process intertwined with our growth um, and our humanity in a world where our jobs are increasingly very much dehumanized. Um, and, and that's a big part of why we're burning out. We're, we're spending the majority of our time in environments that are inhospitable to human beings. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what this book was really about. Like, you know, if there is a path where we can, in the situation that we're already in, change how we're experiencing it, I wanted to really lay that out there. Now, I think it's up to the reader to discern, you know, I think there's some really big questions that we each have to answer. Can we, is it enough? Can we change through our mindset and through practice enough, or are there external changes we have to make? And my kind of thesis throughout the book is maybe there are external changes that you need to make. And the first step to doing that is to do the internal work so that you know when you, that you have the clarity about what it is you want to, to move towards instead of just away from. Um, so yeah, those are some of, I, I wanted it to be a book for people who had Sunday dread, um, for people who felt overwhelmed by their work, um, who felt mom guilt, which I was really grappling with at, at that time in particular. Um, 
and who felt they didn't have the luxury to step out of all of it. Um, and I think a lot of the voices that were guiding what mindfulness at work looks like were coming from a really privileged place that is like pretty unrelatable. Yeah, no, I think I've seen that as well. And, and on that, and it's one of the things I appreciate about the book is, well, there's a few, but one is that it, I found it to be a really wonderful combination of stories, research practices, questions, you know, things that took these things that can seem very conceptual and allows me or a reader to figure out what it looks like in my life and then to put it into, into practice. And a teacher of mine, you know, once suggested that basically any idiot can sit alone, like peacefully in a, in a quiet room, but that's not what meditation is necessarily. And, and said that, you know, we don't meditate, we become meditative. It's when we get off the mat and your book showed examples of that. And uh, this idea to go back to what we talked about with the Tibetan and how maybe the language and the, the culture are informed. You, you introduced me to this idea. I think if I'm saying this right, I'd love if you'll talk about it because I think it's central to everything you're saying now is this about Dampa Sum. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Will yeah. you talk about what that is and, and why you, you included that in this book? Yeah, absolutely. So Dampa Sum is, is basically a framework for approaching anything. So it could be approaching your meditation practice or it could be approaching a task or approaching an increment of a day. Um, and, and basically it translates directly to um, the three, three, all three good things. And, and the three good things are setting your intention. Um, it, so as I, sp I spoke about before, like getting really clear on what our motivation is beyond the immediate either gratification or need that's being met. Um, it's, doing the thing whole heartedly, whole attentively. Um, and then it's reflecting to understand, um, what the learnings are and to, in a kind of traditional Tibetan framework, dedicate the merit or the, whatever good stuff was created or done or experienced that, that, ties back to the the broader issue at hand, the needs of people well beyond who we interacted with. Um, and I think this framework is so simple. So it's one of the things that, you know, you can use when you're going to sit and meditate before you start whatever practice you're doing, remembering why you're doing it and, and connecting with whether that's, um, the impact you want to see in the world or in however you frame it. Right. And so I, I try, I try to sidestep putting too much language around it, but if you're a religious person, you know, that would be the place to connect with what you see as the higher power, let's say. Um, and then really, um, putting yourself fully into what you're doing. So if you're, if it, let's say you're not meditating, you're washing the dishes and you've set your intention that this become, create an environment um, for your home that people can enter and feel welcome and peaceful and as bigger it's so that the people who come through your home can then, you know, be energized to live their lives in a better way, having been there, then just really being present to the washing of the dishes. And then at the end, um, 
reconnecting with the purpose and also doing a little bit of like, where did my attention drift or how did I move away from the practice that I set up for myself? Um, and I think, you know, to your point about what your meditation teacher had said to you about being meditative, it, the image that came to mind for me when you said that was around, you know, when you're spending time in Buddhist countries in, um, in Asia, people are practicing in all kinds of chaotic environments. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson, whether it's someone who's sitting in the middle of the living room with a huge amount of people around them, or they're at a, a holy site and they're walking or bowing and there's people everywhere. There's not the sense of like, I need to be separate from to, yeah. to practice. And, and I think that that is like a very kind of precious perspective for us that like right in the midst of the noise and chaos and messiness, like there's always opportunity um, to develop wisdom or compassion. We might not be able to develop quiet. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> lots of days I wish I, there was more quiet in my world, um, but, but that doesn't preclude the other. Yeah. That makes me think of um, something I once read that um, Gandhi said about my life is my teaching. And about how, you know, our lives are an opportunity for practice in every moment and, and how we don't need to imagine that it's somehow this meditation or mindfulness is somehow separate from our lives. But in fact, every moment of our lives affords us a chance. And I really, I really appreciate that view. I also, I, I really like what you wrote. Oh, and before we leave this topic of purpose, there's a, a couple of things here. You cite some research in the book about uh, runners who run up a hill. And if one group was asked to think about and reflect on their life's purpose before they did, and the other group wasn't asked to do that, but their experience was very different as a result. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And in this, I love this research because I think it cuts to the heart of why having a clear purpose is a massive force for resilience. Um, so this, in the center of the Cornell campus, there's massive hill and there's apparently there's all kinds of things around like getting over the hill. So early in the semester, people go and they attend their classes. And as the weather changes and motivation dies down, the hill becomes this really insurmountable force. And having a stronger why connecting to why you're going to go schlep up and down the hill and come back the other way um, was a, a big determinant in, in the willingness that people had. Um, and in this, to, to do that in, in a very physical, practical way. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting research. Like I love the definition from Dr. Barb Fredrickson, how she defines purpose. Um, she describes it as a far-reaching and steady goal, something personally meaningful and self-transcending. Mm -hmm. And far-reaching and steady, so it's not the minutia of our to-do list, although ideally our to-do list is moving us towards it. It's got to be personally meaningful, which is why I think this kind of introspective conversation and community that you're convening here is so important. People need a place to take the time to think through what is really that important to me. Um, and, and for it to be truly um, 
powerful, let's say, it needs to be bigger than ourselves and our um, it has to have some kind of of impact that on on other people on the earth on you name it, but it's got to be there. And I think that um, that what we know from the purpose research, and I kind of do a lot of examples of this in the studies in my book um, about when we're higher in purpose not only are we mentally stronger, we're less depressed, we're less anxious, we can deal more readily with adversity, we can find post-traumatic growth as opposed to trauma, um, and we can move through trauma. And physiologically, I think that there's like, that's where for me the biggest aha kind of comes in that our bodies at the, whether it's level of inflammation, whether it's a level of our ability to uh, process antivirals, whether it's the genomic kind of microscopic level, it, there's so much research about people who are stronger in purpose are we're healthier. Um, and I, I think that that is a really powerful point even philosophically, because it, it shows us that we need a why. It's not just a luxury for when we're in our 20s, but it's we need it. We are like throughout our lifespan. We need it when we're teenagers. We need it when we're adults and we're in the middle of things and the jobs and the career and the family life is so um, busy and harried. We need it then. And then for older adults, when they're in a their third act, their life expectancy and quality of life is way higher. And there's research around all of these phases. So I hope that that's something, you know, maybe to validate for some of um, the listeners here that, you know, taking this time to do this work is, is fundamental to who we are. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and as you, you talk, something that comes to mind for me is um, Victor Frankel and Man's Search for Meaning. And just his, um, in four years, you'll see in the lightning round, one of my questions is what, what gift have you, uh, what book have you gifted or recommended most often? And that book is far and away the number one. And I, when I have read it a couple of times now, and I just reflect on how, you know, he, Dr. Frankel would talk about the importance of a purpose in one of the worst situations imaginable. And then I think about my life and many of our lives, many of us in the developed world are very blessed, especially by comparison. And this is a little bit, this is a little bit abstract perhaps, but I think of something Warren Buffett said about businesses when he said businesses lose more money in good times than bad. Meaning, you know, when things are easy, when, when the economy is good and when consumers have money and stuff like this, it's easy to not watch costs and it's easy, you know, to not be as disciplined. And I think it's kind of a similar thing where when we are so blessed, it's maybe not as evident how important purpose is, where it's maybe easier to see in, in, in a concentration camp until, you know, it's not right. Like life seems to work until it doesn't. And then like you're saying, whether it's Sunday dread or it's a relationship that, or we do get a diagnosis or something, but that's part of what I love about your book too, is that you give us some practical ways to discover or define, and that's a question before I get to that top down, bottom up approach, I'd love for you to talk about, but do you think that purpose is something that we discover in the universe? Like, is it there waiting for us to find it? Or is it something that we speak or write into existence? How do, how do you see that? 
Um, it's such a good question. Can I, can, when, before I the no, discover no, something we do or uh, find um, your comment about um, purpose in kind of um, when I'm hearing implicit in this, like the abject need that maybe we're not, you and I aren't experiencing today and right. many of our listeners aren't like the kind of idea that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if, if we have our basic um, food, shelter, whatnot handled, um, does that remove us in some fundamental way or, or set us up to have like angst over purpose? There's it occurs to me um, to recommend uh, a book I often assign when I'm teaching anything that allows me to assign it. Um, mm -hmm. One of the Dalai Lama's books um, called Toward a True Kinship of Faiths. And it's basically the whole book is around an exploration of different wisdom traditions and their take on compassion. Mm -hmm. But the introduction is so interesting because he talks in it about his perspective on the more affluent um, contexts being further separated from purpose, from compassion, and experiencing more depression and anxiety. And just the way he lays it out, I think, is in coming from him is so compelling. Um, so anyways, what you were saying just um, made me think of that. And I, I think it's a, a really important question and also something that like you know it's such an interesting one like how to think about privilege and purpose and is it i've had people ask me over the years is is purpose something that you only get to do when you're the ceo and you have all the resources and flexibility i've had people kind of make the opposite assumption like oh i wish that i wasn't in such a rarefied space with all of my needs met and then have all this like luxury to be spinning about big questions that I would be too busy to worry about if I was like actually trying to meet basic needs. Um, it's, it's a, I think a really important question for our time. Um, but coming back to, you know, I, I love the frame that you used. I, I think with purpose, is it something that we like find? Um, is it something that we create? I think it's a bit of a mix. Um, I I do think that um, that there's people often experience this idea of like coming into like an aha around a purpose. I think there's a whole set of people who like have that they have origin stories for their purpose. Like, you know, I, I, I know, I think of my older sister who's, um, who's told me I can stop calling her my older sister and just call her <laughs> my sister. Um, <laughs> um, and she's a physician, like a really passionate physician. And she has a whole origin story around it. And it has to do with our father, who is a physician and an experience she had of, um, of someone um, having a heart attack on a tennis court. And, you know, some people have this, like, I had a moment that catalyzed my sense of where, where I'm supposed to be in this world. And then I think there's a lot of people who don't have that, but they can still have purpose. And I think then there's more of a path around 
examining life story. So one of the exercises I love to do with people um, is, and we've done this interestingly digitally through the Stanford Alumni Network, we put together like a virtual program on finding your purpose. And we would have people meet in little groups all over the world and they would do this interview process that um, we can link to. It's probably simpler than me describing all of it. But long story short, there's a specific process around telling an, a streamlined version of your life story while someone else is listening for the values that they hear and then using the conversation to, to do some clarification and getting down to core values um, and understanding what has been operative, often without us being conscious of it in the moment, but there were key components that drove decisions we made um, and getting more of that kind of, we call in the research language values excavation work, um, mm -hmm. getting really clear, not just like academically, like look at this list of values, circle three you like. I've, I've always looked at those exercises and been like, meh, like, yeah. okay, and so what? But I think looking at like, when were times in my life that big decisions needed to be made? And, and I feel in, in hindsight, like I was, I, I was able to approach that with like a clarity and intentionality. What were those values? Like now that's really interesting and, and understanding how do we then make sense of where are those values with our life and work today? And that's such a big place where burnout happens. That it, burnout isn't just about we're all working too much, although we probably are, but a big precipitant of burnout is when our work has a big drift from our core values. And if we can bring that back together, um, so much changes for us. Um, so I, I think it's kind of both and, and I think not to be discouraged if you're a listener um, who hasn't had that like linear, I, I had a precipitating event and now I know what I'm supposed to contribute to the world kind of catharsis. I think for a lot of us, there's many zigs and zags and it's almost in hindsight, we can see that there was a, a, a path that that is coherent. Um, and I, I think purpose work is something that we all need to do because and I'll, I'll give an example for healthcare, like so many people have a really kind of origin story, like cathartic story behind going into that work, but that doesn't buffer them from, you know, when they're in the experience of being in a broken healthcare system and losing track of their sense of purpose, like either way you need to continue to do the work of, of understanding where is my purpose expressed? Where is it blocked? What do I need to take? Uh, what do I need to take internal action on, external action on, systems level action on, and so forth? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I've never thought of burnout as, um, but I like the way you described that at least sometimes, or one cause is when our work drifts from our values. That's interesting to think of it that way. And with a lot of these things too, to kind of go back to what's almost maybe a theme of, of the interview, uh, the recursive of our interview is this of privilege, right? Where I, I know many people are, are busy They're They are overwhelmed. There's a lot of responsibilities, not to mention distractions and other opportunities and so forth. But what's, what do you, what have you seen that works for people who it's like life isn't working. They have a sense that purpose might be a key for them. 
but they don't necessarily know. They don't know, should they hire a coach? Should they look for a workshop? Should they do a 10 day silent retreat? Like what do you, what would you suggest to somebody who's looking to better define for themselves or understand their purpose? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the art of the possible. So, you know, I would never want to give an answer like retreat is the way to go. If you have like capacity financially and in terms of flexibility, and you can take some space to do a formal meditation retreat or spend time in nature, like, you know, those are always, if you have some structure behind how you're spending that time, whether it's meditation or reflective writing, those can be great things to do. I also think that, you know, some of the insight that can be most powerful can happen um, with kind of micro doses of reflection done regularly. So I'll give an example. One of the exercises that I've done with a lot of like super busy women executives um, who are asking questions around like, I'm I'm successful by objective measures, but am I where I want to be? What, you know, all these kind of purpose-driven questions, Um, or maybe I'm not as successful as I want to be. And I'm don't want to spend the rest of my life feeling like I'm semi good or good enough at what I'm doing. That doesn't like, that wasn't my dream. Um, Is this how it has to be? One of the exercises that I think is really effective and like time limited time bound. So we've been talking about like how much of your time is being spent, how much of your work is being spent aligned with your values. Um, There's a time to purpose challenge uh, kind of methodology that I'll describe in a simplified way that I've done with a lot of folks and women and students and people mid-career and in organizations. So basically the upshot being you do this work to get to your core values um, and you start looking at through having told your story, having made a short list of what you think your current, like you don't have to commit to them forever, but three core values that really define you. So for me, like I might pick um, integrity, compassion, and humor. Like, I feel like those kind of capture a lot for me. Um, And then make it practical. So looking at a day at the end of my day before I log off from my work, like what did I do today? When was I aligned with all of or any of those values? And were there big chunks of the day where I wasn't? And it's also then you can start overlaying what was draining, what was anxiety provoking, where did I feel in the zone, if anywhere, or in flow. Um, And I think really you can do this as a daily, like when you sit down before you just get into the to-do list, setting intentions, coming back to the stomp assume, looking ahead at what here's where my day is going to take me. Uh, I know that there's like bigger risks in these activities because I'm, you know, don't love them. I'm frustrated. So here's my intention here. I'm going to really focus on bridging relationship or compassionate candor or set some sort of like alignment with a value, even in the tedious things we don't want to do the beginning of the day. Or you could do this on a Monday morning and scan your whole week. But the trick is you got to come back at the end and ask, 
How did it go today? How did it go this week? And then that's where we then look ahead. What do I want to do differently next week? Are there things I actually really want to move towards changing how I'm showing up or getting off of my calendar altogether? Um, and I think that it, this structure gives us a lot of opportunity to be honest with ourselves um, about, you know, I think there's, there's definitely things that for many of us we're good at and we feel we should be doing because that's where we're valuable to others. And, um, or there's, there's passions we have that we haven't let grow. Um, so doing this exercise with a coach, I think is, or a peer, like some accountability buddy, we, I, I do think this is work that we want to do in conversation because the opportunities are really highlighted when, when we have this as a dialogue for where we can focus on bite-size changes or practices that we want to insert. Yeah, man, there's, wow. There's so much for me and what you just shared too. Um, like I just interviewed, uh, a guy, uh, for this podcast, not long ago, uh, John Philip Newell, and he's a Celtic teacher. And he talks about this thing. I'd never heard of the Anamkara, which is this idea of the, like a sacred friend, but part of the function of that friend in this relationship, as I understand it is as a witness to one's unfolding. And as you're saying in this dialogue, and I love this term, this microdoses of reflection, where we don't need to necessarily, you know, give away all our possessions or go to some kind of a retreat that we can cultivate this in our daily lives. And, and another thing that came up is when you were talking about the reflection, how that's such an important part. Um, I think about uh, a coach of mine, a guy, Michael Bungay Sr., a friend and a former guest on this. He ends every coaching session with the question, what was most valuable for you here today? And he points to the power of someone to reflect. And in that moment of them articulating, then it's almost they, they become aware or it goes deeper. I think that's really cool. And then <laughs> I think about my dad, who is this phenomenally successful entrepreneur. And my mom told me that one of his practices every night was he would, as he was falling asleep, he would recall the day he had just lived. Who did he meet? What did he do? You know, and I think that informed how did he want to show up tomorrow? Yes. So, so interesting. And then the last, the last thing is, um, I, I heard a mystic once, uh, I think this was a medieval a mystic that has suggested you are already that which you are seeking to become. And in some ways, no, it's no, you know, life is being and becoming, but in another way, I love this practice that you're suggesting because we do tend to look at the what's missing, what's wrong you know, the deficit, but this practice and, and the reflection can help us to zero in on, yeah, I did live my values this way and to acknowledge ourselves. And I just think there's something really beautiful about that. Well, I'm so glad to hear that it resonates. And this, by the way, one of the practices that I've really loved is, is kind of bringing this in with kids at the dinner table. Um, and we've been doing it since they were really little. And sometimes it would be called barks and bites or, you know, different, different kind of metaphors that we would use, but to get them in the habit um, of reflecting on their day in this way. And then I think there's another really interesting element for those of us who struggle with a lot of self-criticism, um, adding in, I think a lot of people are used to the idea of gratitude. What do I appreciate and great, what am I grateful for from others? 
but also appreciation for ourselves for something we did in that day to like see that strength own that um effort and um i think it's really um yeah, to your, I love the example of uh, that you gave of of your father of how it leads us to kind of have further con- stronger conviction about how we want to show up that next day. It's such a yeah. yeah. And and when people will say like, oh, I'm just bad with names. There's a part of me, and I don't I don't know, maybe they are, but I think we tend to think we have congenital defects or something that we don't really have. They're just these limiting beliefs and these stories we tell. But when I look at my dad, he was good with names. But yeah, he reflected on who did he meet and what were they named? And then when he met him again, he had a greater chance for recall and stuff. So there's, yeah, yeah there's a lot in that. Lovely. So I do want to ask you about balance. You shared something, just a little anecdote in here about someone who, um, it sounds like made a difference for you. Uh, someone named father Jack Rathschmidt, right? And as a coach, many, many people I hear, oh, I just, I'm seeking balance, you know, and, and so forth. But uh, it sounds like he told you something that w- has stayed with you about balance. Will you, will you share with me what that was? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in grad school, I was um, doing a program that was one foot in the school of theology and ministry. So the first jubu to be on that side, for sure. Um, and then the other side was in education. And one of um, my friends who was uh, doing Catholic ministry um, and was a really amazing, amazing woman. She does all of this incredible activist work and so forth. She was getting spiritual direction um, from Father Rash Schmidt. And he, um, I was really curious because when I would talk to her, I would hear about the things that he would say. Um, and I like called him up and I was like, I don't know, can we like chat? Um, and, and we started having these regular conversations. And at that point I had just gotten married. I had a newborn, um, and my father had passed. So all in like, you know, um, a very short period of time. And I was feeling completely overwhelmed by like change. It's a lot of change. And, And I was past the point where I had a lot of structure in my doctoral program, like the last few years, you just got to write a lot of stuff. And um, so the the coursework was done. So it was just kind of me up against myself in a lot of ways um, with a lot of changing context. And he, he really pushed this idea of instead of thinking about balance, which has had so much critique in, in the last years of, you know, balance kind of implies this like way that we're standing or holding things that is precarious to think in terms of rhythms and to think not, not about needing to force everything into our idea of what it should look like in any given day. So I kind of had a tyrannical approach. I'm like, well, I have to be doing this as my academic self and my mother self. And what about my physical and psychological need to grieve and, you know, all these things. And it kind of, this idea of a rhythm, thinking about it in the context of a day, a week, a season of life, I think helped me to be okay with like deprioritizing certain things or just not 
you know, there's some simple things like, okay, I have the choice right now. I can either take a nap or I can like clean while my baby's asleep and I'm going to deprioritize cleaning or I'm going to be exhausted. And like, it's, there's just so many of these small choices around can we, where can we let in perfection be okay? And, and know that there'll be other seasons of life that we can come back to that thing that we are feeling pulled towards that we want to do, but there's just not, um, so I really like that. And I think thinking in terms of seasonality has been really helpful. Um, you know, it puts us back to thinking about how nature and in life cycles happen um, and letting there be seasons of rest, seasons of, of more activity, seasons of focus on some elements rather than others. Um, so I, I feel like this is one of those that I'll be living into my whole life. I've been very curious recently, you know, talking to folks who have older kids and um, trying to borrow on some of their perspective about the phase I'm in now, um, you know, with this kind of seasonality in mind, because it's very hard to to have that context when, especially if you're in a phase where you're surrounding yourself with, you know, where do I, where will I spend this weekend? I'll be at, you know, a bazillion hour baseball game with other sitting with other working moms and, you know, people whose lives look so much like mine right now. So it's great because we can connect, but there's also, we share similar blind spots. Uh, So one of the things that really, you know, kind of has come back, to me is an emphasis through reconnecting with friends who have older children as both like a little more equanimity and letting my kids have their own journey and not trying to be as controlling, but also like a bigger emphasis on my relationship with my partner, because like, you know, that is something that in the, the chaos of trying to balance all the things, it's like, you can, um, lose track. Um, yeah. So I like that metaphor a lot. I feel like I'm not doing it justice this morning, but it's a powerful metaphor. No, it is. And I think you're doing great. And, and to what you said about this, um, you know, the seasons that we find ourselves in and parenting and, and so forth. And that a choice ultimately is a choice available to us, whether we're aware of it or not, where to prioritize and maybe prioritize doesn't sound right, but with our partner versus our kids. And that's something I'd never thought about. And my wife, uh, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary okay. and we've known each other about 12 years. And, and, uh, I'm very grateful, you know, together we're raising six kids and she very consciously, and she told me early in our relationship about the importance of that connection of that marital connection and making sure that it was in some ways truly primary. Um, I would not have thought of, and I know it can be easy to go to the kids and so forth, but then in the macro view, the kids, hopefully if all goes well, grow up and leave the nest. And, you know, if you haven't focused on that primary relationship, it's like the chickens come home to roost, <laughs> I think. Yes. yes. Yeah. And you've taught them through your doing that modeling, what it means to, to have that kind of relationship, which I think we all so want for our children to have. Like when I think about my daughter, my goal for her isn't to become like, you know, a self-sacrificing, uh, feeling like she's never enough. I want her to, to 
that's been my way forward. Um, I'm really trying to make changes in like taking time to, to do some of the physical like self-care that my mom guilt has always blocked. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the ways that I'm really finding that changing now is like, what do I want for her? I want her to take care of her body and my voice. I want them all to take care of their bodies, have beautiful relationships, have meaningful work. So like, then that should lead back to the fact that they should see me actively prioritizing those same things. And I just oh. wish I had thought of this like 10 years ago, but <laughs> all right, here we are. <laughs> yep. That's the best time to plant a tree thing, right? Yeah. It would have been two decades ago, but here we are. <laughs> when we know better, then we do better. So awesome. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about, let me, let me turn our conversation to a discussion of Skylight. So tell me, what is this and what does it do for people? Yeah, I love the work that we're doing at Skylight. So a couple years ago, my former superstar MBA student from um, when I was teaching at Stanford Business School, she um, called me up and was like, I'm thinking I'm going to leave McKinsey where she was working before and after business school. And I really want to focus on this problem of burnout and resilience and um, really disappointed to see how so many organizations are just putting, deflecting the problem back on the individuals um, as though they, in, you know, created burnout for themselves by not using the benefits they were offered. Um, and I was in a very similar kind of conclusion after many years of being brought into organizations to do work in the space of whether mindfulness or compassion or purpose. But I kept earlier in my career with the individual kind of focus, what are the individual practices and mindsets that matter, that work and the science behind them. The problem I was realizing was I was becoming kind of a tool for the organizations to um, not make systemic change because there's a workshop and purpose. So if you don't find your purpose and that's kind of on you was the implicit, you know, so I was like, what the two of us came together when we formed Skylight to change working from the, the increment of the individual to bring more um, of an appreciation to the role that team plays in our uh, mental, physical, emotional health, and our productivity, um, and to really um, look at this idea of what would it mean to change workplaces where there's an understanding of team health and what it takes for the group to cr- create that based on best practice. Um, so I love like all, and you'll see this in my book, how we work the the culture and the individual are both super important, but the problem is culture efforts take like three years of consistent, well-funded effort if you're going to try to change an organization's culture. And if you're an individual and you're doing all the right things, if you have a manager and a team that are not mirroring that, you're still not going to get where you want and need to be. Um, So that was like kind of our reason for being of how can we, and I had been experimenting as had um, my former student and co-founder and us with different ways of 
doing kind of micro learnings, measurement that comes back to support behavior change. Um, and how do we apply that in the, the team setting? Because when, when we first started, we did a whole lot of high stress middle manager interviews. Um, you know, a lot of folks who are like her a couple of years out of an MBA in a good, a really good job with a lot of pressure and they weren't ultimately the decision makers. And a lot of um, what we found was the burnout was driven by lack of transparency, lack of fairness, like values drift, these kinds of issues. Um, and what we wanted to do was be able to create a process that protected the individual from having to say, this is sucking my life force working here because I'm experiencing all these microaggressions or I'm experiencing, I do all this work and then a decision is just swooped down, made, and I have no visibility. And I feel really, I, I put everything into it. I gave up my nights, my weekends, and nobody gave me the courtesy of like, helping me even understand how a decision was made out of my work product. Like those are the things that were just destroying people. Um, and so we've been working in a lot of different environments from NASA to Stanford Children's Hospital. They've used our work at Mayo Clinic, um, pharma companies, tech companies, um, places where there's a lot of stress, where people are working as teams and managers are the disproportionate reason why people leave their jobs or people are miserable. But I also think just blaming the manager doesn't make any sense because I've never met one who's like, I woke up with the goal to make people's lives miserable. They're being squeezed, right? Like they, they don't have maybe communication skills or resources or an understanding of they get timelines they didn't ask for that they have to grind towards. Um, so our kind of goal was to create, like using the idea of a team vitals. Um, how can you feedback to the team where they're doing well, where they're at risk, so they can use that information to improve how the managers are managing, how the teammates are experiencing anything from psychological safety to autonomy. Um, to purpose and be able to take this process and over time really understand and own it. So anybody, whether they're an individual contributor understands how I can influence the culture of my team. If I'm a manager, I understand there's even a higher level of responsibility for the culture of the team. And then how do you take all of this and give information back at the higher level at the department or organization? Um, so that they understand what are the implications, what are the needs, what's not working. So it's it's an attempt to you know change how we work um, in, in an extension of of what my book was about and the individual practices, but really trying to honor um, that. You know, there, I'll give you the metaphor from um, the godmother of burnout, Dr. Christina Maslock. She describes. Um, trying to have an individual solve their own burnout, like asking a cucumber in a vinegar barrel not to become a pickle. Mm. It's 
Doesn't make any sense. A cucumber in a vinegar barrel will become a pickle unless you do something about the acidity. And so that's kind of my um, ask for all of us. It doesn't mean that we don't do the individual work. Of course we do, but we also have to understand we are people and environments and we are shaped by them. And we have a responsibility to shape them, but we need to understand how to do that and understand a lot of the role. Yeah. So that that's, that's powerful. And there's in what you're saying, I can, I can just think I'm reflecting on our own family business. And I know from experience, how difficult it can be as someone in a business, even in a leadership position to impart the kind of, I would say force, right? Because like the saying attributed to Einstein that a problem can't be solved with the same level of thinking that created it, that it's no surprise that, these teams, these organizations continue on a trajectory they're on without the infusion of some new thought, some new energy like skylight can provide. So that's like a, but then B is even if you have that, like whatever, there's a knowledge transfer, there's a new insight, then there's the whole work of integration. And if skylight can be a partner with an organization as they're so busy on just serving customers and managing expenses and like all the things that have us driving right over the hood, I, I know again, from experience, how challenging it can be and, and have a partner like that, that can help us to actually, you know, not only find a vision, but then live into it. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. And, and I appreciate, you know, I think one of the things I would say too, I know you have a lot of coaches in this community of listeners and um, we've found it really powerful to, um, to bring coaches into the, so that they can apply this methodology um, and be that ongoing touch point. We also hire coaches to, you know, to be in um, the mix with the projects we're doing. It, it's worked both ways, but yes, for behavior change, we need that ongoing kind of cheerleading, accountability, someone who can see the blind spots of the individual and the group, which it's very difficult, yeah, to, to do. To Einstein's attributed quote is, is uh, exactly on point. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll just share with you one, my one micro point in your, in your book that it blew my mind. And then immediately I was like, Oh, that's true <laughs> about how there are some people you talk about how many people are disengaged in any given organization generally and so forth. And, and the thing uh, that you pointed out was that there are people, there are some people in some organizations that would rather sabotage or destroy a project, then see another colleague succeed in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel bad for people in those toxic kind of situations, but I know it's unfolding every day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, And it's up to the culture and, you know, the leadership to make that not happen. Um, yeah. Or, or to reinforce that. Yep. Well, with, um, if you're okay with it, let's go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round. Okay. Again, this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. My aim for the most part is to just ask the question and stand aside. I might, my curiosity might get the better of me and I'll, I'll tug on a few of your responses, but uh, I'll, I'll try to keep us moving. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Mm-hmm. Life is like a classroom where we're always learning. Okay. Question number two, what's something about which you have changed your mind in recent years? Um, 
parenting so many places where my kids have, um, have pushed my thinking. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of one like very specific example. Um, what, what would come to mind? Something that I've changed my mind on. Um, Blocksburg, one of the Roblox games I was very much against. And my daughter really, like, I think it's a lot of benefit from some of the creativity in, in there and, and gaming in general. Um, they, my kids have, have changed my thinking about it. All right. On. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? My shirt would say, um, the guidance counselor for my youngest likes this quote, um, kindness grows. I think that's a pretty nice one. (laughs) That's cool. I like that. All right. Question number four question I referenced earlier, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Um, Annie Dillard's writing life. I love that book. Um, for when I want to, you know, stay out of any Buddhist studies or, um, kind of religious, I think it really gets into our process of what it means to create and encounter fear. Um, and one of, I think the most powerful, powerful points that has been helpful to me as a writer that she talks about is, um, that how essential it is in the creative act to destroy, um, And that I think is always a really painful, frightening part of the creative process. So the writing life, it's small and it's powerful. Mm. Awesome. I haven't read that, but I've read some of Annie's work and I sure love it. Awesome. Okay. Question number five. So this has to do with travel in your career. I imagine you've traveled quite a bit. What's one thing you do when you travel, like maybe a travel hack, something to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I really like to do, um, like compassion meditation while I'm walking through the airport and just, um, like do a version of, um, instead of getting frustrated or claustrophobic from all the people around, like really trying to, um, see, imagine them in their entirety of their life, of their context and um, the kind of common humanity. I I love spending time doing that. It really changes the travel experience. Awesome. Okay. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? About two years ago, a friend of mine who's a coach mentioned that she had made a New Year's resolution to stretch for five minutes every day. And I've been doing that now for about a year and a half. And it's so good. It's so good. And I'm always talking about like micro meditations and doing things in small increments, but the five minutes of stretching is, uh, I'm I'm very grateful for that habit. And I think it is, makes a big difference. That's great. That just reminds me, I did a workshop one time and a guy was in the military who was in the program and he he consulted his commanding officer for his advice for how to advance in his career. And, and that, and, uh, this was a man, a few words. And he said, stretch. <laughs> and he said, you mean like push myself? He's like, no, I mean, physically stretch. <laughs> I, was, Love that. I think about that a lot. 
Okay. Uh, question number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish we knew how to listen for understanding of ideas that we don't hold or don't agree with. Me too. I wish I knew how to do that. (laughs) Um, Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Um, Assuming positive intent or trying to return to it and remembering um, that my brain slash all of our brains are attribute interpretations automatically and we believe them and, and they're not necessarily true. Often they're not true. Um, and when I can remember that, that, that I'm constantly creating stories and so are other people and we can come back to what's, um, what's the positive intent behind our relationship if it's, you know, one that we're both committed to, um, or just, if just trying to understand what's actually happening, um, in, instead of believing my thoughts. Mm. Awesome. Um, question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Um, that, that there's a lot of self-development work to be done within the context of money. I think I had a, like an allergy to it. I just wanted to like not engage or everything kind of around it, um, professionally for me was, a lot of struggle and I think kind of changing, um, changing this perspective to being curious about where, you know, from what are my spending habits? What am, how my grandfather used to always say, we vote with our feet about basically everything in life, but how am I voting with my dollars in terms of what matters to me? Um, but also just like as a woman professional, who is very uncomfortable negotiating or charging, you know, for the work that I do that when I realized that this isn't a deviation from like a path of growing, but actually trying to understand what, what are my insecurities and, and, and fears and aversion and just like really that it is, there's a lot to learn um, in how we interact with money. <laughs> it all shows up right there. <laughs> yeah. I just, um, I, I, I just interviewed a woman in, uh, named Britt Frank who wrote a book called the science of stock. And she suggested if we want to face our shadow, we look at our browser history and our calendar, <laughs> but I'm also thinking like oh, maybe our credit card bill. <laughs> That's interesting. And then another event I went to, there was a guy who was speaking, he was a therapist. And he said that when he was a student learning psychotherapy, his um, teachers said, you must undergo psychotherapy yourselves. And the subject of your therapy will be your parents and money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. 
I remember a friend of mine who was a doctoral student in theology was getting married during our, while we were in school together. And she did premarital like counseling or sessions with, um, with the priest um, from their, from their community and money was a big part of what he pushed them to talk about because it's the reason that so many relationships struggle. And I thought that was really powerful to like, get, get aligned from the beginning. (laughs) It was really smart. Yeah. Super smart. Well, speaking of money and congratulations, you survived the lightning lightning round. You did great. (laughs) Um, one thing I have done, uh, in an effort to express my gratitude to you for sharing of your time and your wisdom with me and everyone listening is I've gone on Kiva.org. I know a Stanford, Stanford students that um, made this and made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman in Liberia. She's 34 years old. She's named Hawa, excuse me, Hawa. She will use this to buy more rice, red oil, Vita onions and other items. And she will sell this food in her community. And, uh, I hope by doing so improve the quality of life for herself, her family and people around her. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that. Beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Well, the very last part of our interview here is just a few questions for you about writing and about creativity. Um, this one is kind of random come to me, but I'm going to start with it. What's the best money you ever spend as a writer? Mm. Um, the best money that I spent as a writer might be for just finally getting like markers and pens I really, really liked um, and enjoy. It just it really makes a difference for process. No doubt. Yeah. The feel, the tactile and the experience of using whatever tools we use uh, makes such a big difference. Do you do a lot of writing longhand? Do you sketch? Like how do you capture and preserve thoughts typically? Yeah. I, um, I'm kind of all over the place. I do. I, I have always a lot of notebooks and pieces of paper kind of going. Um, I go through phases of doing a lot of kind of more elaborate journaling and drawing. Um, but I, I overall, I kind of, I think I, I go in phases where I, there's a topic I'm really interested in. I start researching and like teaching or giving, doing things with it, workshop being it, and then writing out of that process. Um, I find that really helpful. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I've started dabbling with some more creative, um, writing than the nonfiction that I usually do. And, um, my process there is a little bit different. I'd say, um, it feels more kind of private and like, um, you know, whereas like the nonfiction kind of topical writing is so interactive and what are people's experiences? How do they react to this information? Like trying to think about a learning pathway for making it useful. Um, but I think the more like aesthetic writing is, is more kind of um, quiet hand often like while I'm traveling or if we're, we do a lot of camping as a family, like that kind of environment. Mm. Who, who has been influential in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? 
I would say um, Kelly McGonigal, um, who is an incredible um, author. She's um, great TED Talks. I have worked with her at Stanford for a lot of years, and she really influenced my teaching and writing process. I, before I met her, I like to do a million different things. Like I always had a lot of different projects going and she really encouraged me to like focus and repeat and, and in the repeating really kind of think about the messaging and the learning and, and seeing the teaching and the speaking and the writing kind of fit together. Um, I also think she's really influenced me when we've taught together. It's been years now, but it was really informative. Um, she would kind of go right to the points of doubt or skepticism. Um, and I hadn't seen teachers. I'd seen a lot of people like fight with the points of doubt or skepticism or debate them, but she had a particular way of really engaging with them, what kind of wisdom they might contain um, or bringing together kind of the shadow of a topic um, in a really powerful way. And that is something um, that I think just like informs how I try to teach, how I write and how I'm trying to live. Um, yeah, it's a, I really like that instead of the kind of typical, like, here's the way forward, here's the idea, and I'm going to like fight it and argue it and da, 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 da. But let's also, as part of understanding this idea, what are, what are the, the problematics? Who does this not make sense for? What would block this? All of those kind of doubts, um, which I've always had as a practitioner and a learner, but mm -hmm. taking those into, um, how I kind of accompany other people through their learning has been the biggest um, takeaway. She really, um, the, and the value of repeating, whereas I always like novel, new topic, I'm going to teach, uh, you know, these two courses this year, and then I'm going to develop a new one and a new one. And I'm always giving different talks that I'm researching for, as opposed to like, I really want to get in deep with this one. Um, yeah. Right on. How cool to have a, a colleague who can be like a friend and a teacher and, and so forth. And that way in her book, by the way, um, the upside of stress has really made an impact on a friend of mine to the point that, uh, I've benefited. I haven't even read the book. Oh, I <laughs> love talk, that. Yeah. He'll talk about when he encounters a stressful situation already, he's changed his internal monologue to let's go. <laughs> like, all right, game on. That's the one game on. So that's awesome. Um, what tools do you find I know Microsoft Word, pretty much everyone says Microsoft Word, but what tools and technologies do you find indispensable as a writer? Some people I know will use like a corkboard and have index cards. Other people create like commonplace books or they'll use Evernote or even Scrivener. Like, are there any softwares or hardwares or just good old fashioned? Like you mentioned Notebook, but what, uh, no problem. What, uh, what tools and technologies have become an indispensable part of your writing? Yeah, when I started writing How We Work, I really liked Scrivener. Um, now I'm a big fan of Notion, which I've started using for work, but I like the way things embed within each other. Um, so I use it for my own 
like non-collaborative writing um, as well. I am a big believer in the whiteboard. So to the point where like I have half of my office is covered in like the whiteboard paint and I just getting up and moving and sketching things out and being able to put sticky notes. And um, I really like that. Uh, I just basic like old school paper files of, um, you know, I'm really increasingly trying to, I feel badly about the paper part, but just reading on screens is, I just, it doesn't, it's not great for me and my concentration or my ability to synthesize ideas. So paper and files and tactile, um, I feel, you know, are just really important. Mm. What habits and routines, if any, do you have around writing? And I realize it might change when you're in a specific project or something, but anything, anything come to mind there? Um, so I, my youngest son loves to walk and he gets kind of like the Sunday blues before every day of school. So we do walks in the morning and he's very philosophical. So he is a sounding board, um, for like just coming back to existential questions. Um, that's a like really important, um, part of, of my process at this point. Um, I, really actively take breaks and do things like garden or walk or cook or anything kind of physical, um, instead of like sitting and staring, um, you know, at, at whatever I'm trying to do. I really value the, the doing some work and then leaving it and letting that processing happen. Um, and I think that's, made things a lot more pleasurable, giving things time to like gestate um, uh, is really important. I prefer about a lot of things talking to writing. So doing more like having through a talk or a conversation than transcribing it um, I think is, is a helpful workaround to, um, if I can have a dialogue as opposed to like the monologue and yeah. or going back to talks that I've given to think about like key points and like powerful questions people have asked. Those are really good. Um, like getting into something that feels like weighty, um, hacks, <laughs> I'll say. What was your process like to get how we work done? What were the, just the broad strokes of, from the time you settled on the idea or the thesis of the project and how did you organize your time? How did you collaborate? Like just anything related to that. My literary agent was really instrumental in the whole, like defining the process, defining the topic, how to frame it. Um, and I, the editor that I worked with at HarperCollins um, was amazing and like very much got the vision. There had been, um, that was the reason I went with that uh, publisher uh, as compared to other ones. Like I would really encourage people when you're fine, if you're going a traditional publishing route, um, you know, there are other people who had cool ideas about where my book could go, but 
but they weren't bringing out like what I felt was the best of what I have to offer. They felt like cool other people's books that I could try to write as opposed to like, what is, what is my voice? What is my message? What, what pulls on my experience? Um, I think, um, process wise, oh my gosh, so much, um, trial and error. I rewrote that proposal a bunch of times, um, with my agent's input and the proposal changed significantly. It was a period of time where a lot of mindfulness at work books were coming out, which I'm now grateful for because it pushed me to really get to where we started. Like, what is it that I want to say and contribute that's different than a like, go meditate for the first minute of your meeting or lunchtime meditation at your office, which like, great, but okay, we're done with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had to keep kind of going I had two babies in the process of getting this book written. So time would pass and my perspective would change. So there was a lot of like from that Annie Dillard idea of like destruction in order to create. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I rewrote the the proposal a few times over until it became something really um, that felt worthwhile um, to my agent, to the publishers. And then um you know, writing, it was pretty, it went through in phases that were grueling and really hard and phases that felt really inspired and, um, like magical and everything in between a lot of slog, um, and just, you know, finding people who could read and react at the right points. And when those right points were, was important. Wow. The messy process. I wish I had something more like. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a book. <laughs> <laughs> My fourth child. Yeah. Yep. What advice or encouragement would you offer anyone who is working to, to get their own book done? Yeah. I think no, it's going to sound a little bit cliched or perhaps on brand for me. Know your why. Like, are you writing this? Um, there's so many different valid reasons to want to put a book out in the world. But if you're you, the reason you have driving it um, should determine how that happens. There's great paths with self-publication. There's great paths with um, working with a publisher. Um, there's a lot of steps if you're going through a more traditional path of a publisher and finding an agent and da, 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 da. And if your goal is you just want to synthesize something and put it out there and you're excited about the creativity of social media or getting it out into the world. I mean, people increasingly say, I've heard more and more published authors from traditional publishing houses move towards self-publishing because for later books, because they're like, I have to do all the the all publishing is self-publishing in the sense that you have to be the engine behind promoting it. I won't say that's hundred percent true for me at Harper Collins. They were amazing and did a lot, but I think for many people that's true. So it may not be worth all of that extra hassle. If it's something that you have a vision, you can, there's great supports to help get a beautiful clear book and you can put it out into the world and do a lot of positive things with it. Um, you know, depending on what your goals are. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That is very on breath <laughs> for you. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. I think my last question then here is just, um, you mentioned about, um, 
promotion, marketing, a little bit sales. What have you learned? Uh, what have you learned now as somebody who's published a book? It's been out for a few years. You have gone with the New York publisher and so forth, but what, what would you tell a beginning author they could expect, or maybe they even should do I'm not big on should, I suspect you aren't either, but <laughs> when it comes to marketing, promotion, sales, anything like that, what, what would you say? I mean, I think if you're clear about your why, is this a book that you want because it's going to support a business goal that you want to use it to establish, you know, your expertise and, um, or is this a book that is about you diving deep into a topic you care about and learning and synthesizing and communicating, depending on what it is, I think I one of my lessons was like maybe to put in some ways less pressure on the book um, itself. Like a lot of things continue to unfold over time. And actually like my publishing team said that they're like, we think yours is going to be a long tail book. We're not, you know, expecting or pressuring you to have like a New York times bestseller in the first few weeks. But, but if you are in it, for the long haul that this is a set of topics. Like I, I love talking about these topics. I probably will for my whole life. Um, the, the launch itself, it, it just changes a perspective. If you take a bigger timeline on this is something I'm putting out in the world and it will be a way that I continue interacting with people in these ideas um, versus like, you know, gunning it to get a specific kind of, um, like notoriety. And then the other thing is, is there's a lot, the um, kind of PR around a book and, and writing, like there's a lot of great stuff about how to get involved in being um, a source for articles, using Harrow, using, um, there's so many like democratized accessible places to write. Um, and so you can try to do like a super difficult to get into niche, or you can also um, focus on, you know, putting your message out through a medium or another one of those kinds of forums that anybody can get onto um, and just keep the cadence going. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's not something to get into because of money or the likelihood of any single book bringing fame and transformation for a person like financially or professionally is pretty small, but doing it because you love it and you want the experience is what I highly recommend. <laughs> awesome. Well, fantastic. Well then let's wrap with that. Um, I guess again today, Dr. Leah Weiss, how we work, live your purpose, reclaim your sanity and embrace the daily grind. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed every second. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access 
to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.